Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Welcome to our continued study of the book of Revelation. What I hope to do in these podcasts now is to provide some more insights and how to understand the book of Revelation. Again, I really want to encourage you to listen to the podcast that discusses Revelation chapters 1 through 22 first. Once we've gone through the book and become fairly familiar with the text and the topics and the meaning of the text, it's then good to step back now and look at some of the more popular questions that we are commonly raised. Today's podcast, I'd like to look particularly at the question of the imagery in the book of Revelation. Needless to say, the imagery in the book of Revelation causes a lot of consternation, as well as a lot of divisions within the church in terms of what it means and how we understand it. The first point I'd like to make is that the imagery in the book of Revelation would have been fairly familiar to John's readers. For the most part, there are symbols that the readers would have known what they meant because they were widely used. Back in the ancient world, the earth was widely thought to have four corners. There were four winds in four directions. Thus, the things in four generally symbolize earthly realities. And so, there's certain elements of the imagery in the book of Revelation that would just simply would have been part of the, uh, of the popular parlance, part of the, the, the common language, the, the things that they would have readily understood. Secondly, it's important to understand that apocalypse, apocalypses themselves were written to people in crisis. Now, we describe the book of Revelation as an apocalypse. Apocalypse is kind of a style of writing. It's a style of writing that uses a lot of imagery. Um, there are dragons with seven heads and ten horns, and the earth rolls up like a scroll, and the moon becomes like uh, blood, and the stars become fall to the earth. It, it's this cosmic imagery. But the book of Revelation is not simply just an apocalypse. It's an apocalypse, but it's also a letter. After all, the book of Revelation begins with I, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. John identifies himself, he identifies his readers, and even his purpose in writing. The book of Revelation, in fact, even closes with, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. A common way of ending a particular letter. So the book opens and closes kind of in a literary format. We have, obviously, the letters of chapters 2 and 3, which aren't quite strictly letters in even of themselves. But it's both an apocalypse, which it tells us that it is in chapter 1, verse 1, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ or the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's also a letter, but it's also a prophecy. Blessed are the ones who hear the words of the prophecy of this book and, and heed the things that are written in it. Now, it's important to understand that prophecy doesn't mean something that's foretelling of the future. Prophecy, especially in the New Testament, has this sense of taking something that God has already said and helping God's people understand the significance of it. And maybe an, an authoritative declaration of what God said. Even the prophets in the Old Testament weren't necessarily forth-tellers. Prophets in the Old Testament were commonly saying, hey, look, God has already told you this, and if you don't do this, he's going to do this because of that. So the he's going to do this might be a prophetic statement about something that's going to happen in the future. But note the prophet is often referring back to the past, what God has already spoken, and you need to obey it or stop doing this or start doing this or keep doing that. Uh, otherwise, God, you're going to experience God's uh, uh, wrath or God's blessings, depending on uh, which you do. Um, so apocalypses themselves were written to a community of people that were in crisis. The purpose in writing to a community of people in crisis, using this apocalyptic language and imagery, 
was to inform them of what's actually really happening. You know, we only see what we see. We, we see the things around us, but we, we don't see the reality that, uh, that's going on uh, of God's sovereign control. And the apocalyptic writer, a prophetic writer, is kind of taking God's perspective, saying, if you had God's perspective, you would understand these things. For one, you would understand the fact that your suffering is only going to be a short time. Furthermore, you would understand the fact that God is actually in total control of all that's going on. God's in sovereign control. He's the, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And, and he's controlling all these events, and he will bring about a just and due cause, a, a just cause in due time. Now, apocalyptic imagery often gives cosmic significance to what has happened. Uh, and, and I like to say that apocalypse, apocalypses themselves use this cosmic imagery because there's simply nothing better to explain what's really happening. When God uh, breaks into creation, when, when God acts in a, in a substantive way, the only way to describe it or the best way to describe it is if the, the heavens are going into chaos. The sky is rolling up like a scroll, and the sun's becoming darkened, and the moon's becoming like blood. Uh, this is simply a, a way of saying God is acting, and because God is acting in this creation in a significant way, uh, the, the cosmos is undergoing an upheaval. Uh, so the result of then is that apoc- apocalypses often use end-of-the-world language to describe things because there's simply no better language. Oftentimes, taking this language literally would make no sense. I mean, if you think about it, if the sun became darkened, you couldn't see that the moon became like blood. There's just simply no, no, no sense of taking this literally. And, and the early readers and hearers of the, gospel, of the book of Revelation would never have understood this stuff in a literal sense. Um, Jesus will often, by the way, use apo- apocalyptic language in his parables. By the way, when we talk about apocalyptic language, it's, it's not something that's reserved only for the book of Revelation. It's something found throughout the New Testament, and especially even in the, in the Gospels of Jesus. Jesus will often end his parables with, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, which we see in the book of Revelation as an indication that what has just been spoken is apocalyptic. Another reason why the author uses symbols is because symbols allows the writer to express what words cannot. Symbols affect the emotions and not just the intellect. Think about the story in Revelation chapter 12 and how it affects the emotions. There's a woman and a dragon standing before the woman who's about to devour the woman and the woman's child the moment it was born. But the child is snatched up to God into his throne. Then there's war in heaven and the dragon's kicked out and the, the dragon goes after the woman. The, the, the story conveys this emotion of, oh no, we, we know the dragon's bad and the woman's good and I hope the woman gets away. And it, it, it conveys a deeper, richer sense of understanding by affecting our emotions and not just our intellect. Symbols also, of course, tell us how things would be viewed. Jesus is not actually a lamb. We, we know he's not a lamb, but a lamb symbolizes him as sacrificial, innocent, and even dependent. The churches are not actually lampstands, but it t- testifies to us that the church's primary responsibility is to bear witness and to be the light of the world. Now, of course, as soon as we begin to say that Revelation is full of symbols and symbolism, people kind of get a little bit uneasy about that, because symbols and symbolism could be differently interpreted by one person as opposed to another, and, and who's to put the controls and to tell us what the symbols mean? Isn't it easier, isn't it safer, just to simply say that the symbols are not symbols, that they're actual, literal descriptions of what actually literally is going to take place? The problem with that, of course, is that we know that that's not the way the book of Revelation works. We know, for example, that the Satan is not actually a seven-headed dragon. We know, for example, that Israel is not actually a woman who's actually clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. We know that the churches are not actually lampstands. How then are we supposed to determine what the imagery means without it being subjected to 
wild and fanciful and speculative understandings? Well, the first point is what I've already mentioned, and that is the symbolism, some of the symbolism would have been familiar to John's readers. They simply would have known that the earth has four corners is just simply a reference to all directions and things of that nature. So it's our responsibility then to, to discern the best that we can, how would the symbol have been understood by the first century readers? But when we go on from there, of course, we begin to realize that some of the imagery, we're actually told what it means. Sometimes John tells us. In chapter 1, verse 20, he says the seven stars and the seven lampstands are the angels and the churches. And in chapter 5, verse 6, the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In chapter 17, the seven heads are said to be seven mountains and seven kings. In verse 12 of chapter 17, the ten horns are ten kings. In verse 18, the woman is the great city. In chapter 19, verse 8, uh, verse eight, the fine linen of the bride is the righteous deeds of the saints. So oftentimes the symbols are actually, we're told what they, what they mean. In addition to this, one of the primary ways that we understand what the symbolism of the book of Revelation means is by understanding it from its Old Testament context. Some of the symbols would have been understood by John's readers as just simple natural things that they would have uh, used. Sometimes the symbols are, were told by John what they mean. And most of the time, the symbols actually derive from an Old Testament passage. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 7, describes the beast that comes up out of the sea. Well, the parallel for that is Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 14, and 21 verses, uh, verses 21 through 25. And in Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts, and the four beasts clearly parallel the one beast of Revelation chapter 13. Uh, the description of the uh, angel with a scroll in his right hand in chapter 10 uh, of the book of Revelation uh, parallels Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 8 through th- uh, chapter 3, verse 3. In both cases, we see uh, the prophet having a book. The book is written on the front and on the back. They're told to eat the book, and the book is sweet as honey. So there are major sections in the book of Revelation then that derive uh, from major portions of the Old Testament. We noted in our, in our closing sections of Revelation chapters 19 through 22 how Ezekiel 37 through 48 provides a primary background for uh, those sections in the book of Revelation. As a result, then, the symbolism in the book of Revelation is not open to wild and fanciful interpretations and subjected to whatever the, the wishes and whims of the, of the interpreter might desire. The, the, the symbols in the book of Revelation are pretty concrete. They're based and rooted in the Old Testament passages that John's reading them in light of the fulfillment that's in Jesus. Uh, the symbols sometimes were told what they mean, and other times they're simply just common understanding, at least in the first century world, of, of what they would have referred to. Now, the result then is that they simply cannot be understood in a literal way. Jesus himself is not actually a lion or a lamb. He doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth. What's interesting, as David Barr notes, is he says, quote, All literalists actually allegorize the text by the process. This symbol means this event. Such literalists claim that 666, for example, means Hitler or Saddam Hussein or some other historical villain. But, of course, this is literally what the text does not say. It's kind of ironic, then. Those who advocate for a literal interpretation are actually more often allegorizing the text than those who understand the text as having a symbolic meaning. In my opinion, then, the conclusion is is that John is using apocalyptic language to describe God's breaking in history in the person and work of Christ. The best way to describe God breaking into history is to use apocalyptic language. This imagery of this cosmic upheaval, God is doing something significant. It's covenant uh, establishing with the coming of Jesus. The result then is that this imagery derives primarily from the Old Testament, which John is reading the Old Testament in light of its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, another important aspect of understanding the symbolism in the book of Revelation is John's use of numbers. 
I remember for years ago, I used to be highly skeptical of anybody who tried to interpret numbers as having some, signal, some sy symbolic significance. There just seems to be too many people out there making wild and speculative understandings and, or interpretations that this number means this and this number means that, and therefore this and this and this all uh, prove conclusively that Jesus is going to come back in the year 2012 or 2004 or 2000, every single time they're wrong, regardless of what they say. But numbers are clearly used with, with a symbolic significance throughout the book of Revelation. It's simply undeniable. There's simply way too many examples. The most significant numbers in the book of Revelation are 7, 4, 3, and 12. Of course, we note, for example, that there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Uh, blessed, the word blessed occurs seven times. Seven represents completion or completeness. It simply does throughout the entirety of scriptures. There was creation in seven days. It also represents perfection. And often it's contrast with the number six, which is not perfection or not completion. So we see, for example, the, the title of God, the one who sits on the throne, occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. The title of the Lord God Almighty occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. So does the title Alpha and Omega. So does the word Christ. How about the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes? The word prophecy occurs seven times. The word come occurs seven times. Uh, the word blessed has occurred seven times. The word, uh, the phrase I am coming occurs seven times. Uh, there are seven classes of people in chapter 6 verse 15. Uh, the word patient endurance or hupomone occurs seven times. So the, the, the fact that John does this so often and so consistently tells us that he really does have a consistent meaning to the number seven, completion, perfection, totality. There are seven churches, and the seven churches then would represent all of Christianity. John's not writing just to seven churches. He's writing to all of Christianity that is symbolized by these seven churches. The number four, as I mentioned already in this podcast, represents completion in regards to creation. The earth has four corners or four directions. The world is divided into four parts. There are four winds. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13, there's the heavens, the earth, there's under the earth, and the sea. Chapter 8, 14, and 16 refer to the, the earth, the sea, the rivers and springs, and heaven. And rivers and springs are one, one item there in the Greek. The divine title, the one who lives forever and ever, occurs four times which uh, probably signifies that God is a sovereign over all creation. The phrase seven spirits occurs four times. After all, they're the seven spirits which are sent out into all the earth. If the earth is symbolized by four, or completion in regards to creation, and the seven spirits are sent out into all the earth, it's not surprising that the, phrase, that the title seven spirits occurs four times. And then there are four angels who restrain, who restrain the four winds in the four corners of the earth. Another important number is the number three. Three often represents God or the divine, or even the counterfeit of the divine, of course referring to God as a holy trinity. Christ is described in chapter 1, verse 5, with the threefold titles of faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. We have the titles Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and the end, all three of them used in Revelation 22, verse 13. God is described as the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, probably suggesting God's eternality. Of course, that's imitated or mimicked or mocked by the beast in Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, who is who was and is not and is to come. God is also described as the one who was and who is and who is to come in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. He's holy, 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 threefold in 4, verse 8. And then there's the description of glory, honor, and power to God. Another important number, what we saw in the description in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, is the number 12. Twelve represents completion in relationship to the people of God. 
It may well be that the number 12 derives from the number of number for God, 3, multiplied by the number of crea for creation, 4. 3 times 12 is 4. It just might also be the same, by the way, that the number 7 is the number of God, which is 3, combined with the number uh, for the earth and creation, 4, uh, totaling 7. We see the number 12 throughout the book of Revelation. There are 12 tribes, of course, in the Old Testament, as well as in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. The New Jerusalem has 12 foundation stones. The New Jerusalem has 12 gates, with three gates on each of the four sides. The 12 gates have 12 pearls. The number 12 actually occurs 12 different times in the description of the New Jerusalem. The word bowls occurs 12 times as well. Now, what's also significant is that John clearly uses these numbers with intentionality. Uh, two is the number of witness, and the faithful witness, and a trustworthy witness. So we see two witnesses in the book of Revelation. But evidence that he does this intentionally, by the way, is not only found in the fact that there are so many examples, and I didn't give you anywhere near uh, all the examples that are used for each of the numbers, but also by the fact that John seems to avoid these specific numbers, and particular numbers, when it comes to using, when it comes to reference to evil things. For, the, for example, the word dragon occurs 13 times. Uh, the name Satan occurs eight times. Then the word devil occurs five times. Serpent occurs five times. The word beast occurs 38 times. Babylon occurs six times. None of these numbers, none of these words appear to be used with any symbolic significance. They're avoiding the significant numbers, in fact, when using, when referring to evil or evil entities. Now, there are exceptions to this. And the exceptions happen to be when Satan or evil is imitating the divine. The dragon has seven heads because the dragon wants you to think that the dragon is God. The beast also has seven heads and ten horns, because the beast is imitating Christ. John's use of, of numbers, then, is another form of an apoc apocalyptic way of showing us the way things really are. John symbolizes the way things really are by use of numbers. The dragon's number is 666. It's not Trinity. It's not, it's not God. It's not perfect. It's not complete. It's not 777. By the way, to further substantiate the fact that John's using these numbers intentionally, we see other examples where divine numbers are actually combined. For example, the name Jesus occurs 14 times. Seven times the name Jesus occurs with designation of him as a witness. Now, since Jesus is the faithful witness par excellence, remember the first description of Jesus in the book of Revelation is the faithful witness, and since the number of witnesses two, it's not surprising that the word, the name Jesus occurs 14 times. There are actually 14 references to the Spirit. And after all, the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. And if the prophecy is true prophecy, 7 times 2, it's not surprising that the word Spirit occurs 14 times. The phrase, every tongue, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation occurs 7 times. And what's also interesting is the word Lamb occurs 28 times. 7 times the word Lamb is coupled with God. But in Revelation 5 verse 9, it says the Lamb was purchased for, the lamb purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Remember, if the nations of the world and the creation itself is fourfold, or the number four, and if God's perfect number is seven, seven times four is 28, the word lamb occurs 28 times, because with your blood you purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The importance of this is that when we come to numbers in the book of Revelation, we need to ask, what is the symbolic significance of this number? Now, we can ask if this number has a literal referent as well, and if it does, what does that literal reference mean? For example, there are seven churches. The symbolic significance is that the seven churches represent all of Christianity. Is there a literal reference as well? Yeah, there actually were seven actual churches.
This is supported now by the fact that, the, that there are four references to the seven churches. Chapter 1, verse 4, 1, 11, and tw- chapter 1, verse 20, uh, twice. Thus they represent all the churches of the world. When it comes to numbers, then, in the book of Revelation, the primary meaning is actually in the symbolic significance. There may or may not, in fact, actually be a literal referent behind it. This means that when we look to numbers in the book of Revelation, we also need to look and see what the Greek text actually says. For example, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands upon thousands. What's interesting now is when you compare the, the, transla- the translations. The ESV says myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, just as the New American Standard says. Uh, the Net Bible translates that as their number was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands times thousands. The NIV says the numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. The New Living Translation, of course, uh, says there were thousands and millions. And the New Revised Standard says the number was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The problem here is that people try to take this number literally, and you can't. Obviously, in Revelation chapter 5, the number of angels around the throne is this, this innumerable number. The word thousands upon thousands is not a problem, but myriads upon myriads is problematic. The Greek word myriads means ten thousand, ten thousand, literally. The problem is that the word almost always occurs in the plural. In other words, it's translated as ten thousands. And the translation of ten thousands times ten thousands is actually, you can't, you can't multiply that number. You don't know how many ten thousands there are to multiply by how many ten thousands. It's ten thousands times ten thousands. It's this innumerable multitude of angels around the throne. What's intriguing then is when we turn to chapter 9, verse 16. It refers to this mounted troops, this army that comes across the Euphrates. And the New American Standard says the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. The ESV says that there were twice 10,000 times 10,000. Doesn't quite translate it. The NIV says that there were twice 10,000 times 10,000. The Net Bible says 200 million. The New Living Translation says 200 million. And the New Revised Standard Translation says 200 million. The problem is, is that the Greek says that the number of the armies of the horses was two ten thousands times ten thousands. And the problem is that number can't be multiplied. You can't multiply ten thousands times ten thousands times two because you don't know how many ten thousands there are in the first one, let alone in the second one. The number then should be translated as two myriads of myriads. And there's no way to specify. So when someone turns around and says, well, this is actually the number of the, uh, of the Chinese army. They have 200 million soldiers. And the book of Revelation predicts that uh, an army of 200 million soldiers will cross over the Euphrates and come towards an attacking Israel. It's simply un- un- unfeasible. It-, it doesn't say that there are 200 million soldiers coming across the, uh, the Euphrates from the east. It says there are two ten thousands times ten thousands coming across uh, the Euphrates uh, from the east. The number cannot actually be translated. It's also important, as you notice if you listen to the uh, podcast in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when we're describing the city of the New Jerusalem, and John was measuring the the, the city, and it says, the uh, New American Standard says that he measured the city and it was 1,500 miles. Well, the Greek says 12,000 stadia, 12 times 1,000. When it says he measured its wall, and it was 72 yards, according to to man, well, that's the New American Standard. The, The Greek says it was 144 cubits. Again, you see 12 times 12. The significance of the numbers of 12 and 10 and uh, um, 
uh, 7 and 3, etc., are important. The book of Revelation then uses symbolism. Symbolism that captures the emotions and not just the intellect. The imagery in the book of Revelation is not always easy to understand, but we do have some ground rules. The imagery comes primarily from the Old Testament. The imagery is often interpreted for us by John, and some of the imagery would have simply been understood by John's readers, and it's our job to to then discern what would that imagery have meant in this first century context. The use of numbers is an important aspect of John's symbolism, but those numbers aren't wild and speculative and, uh, and open to fanciful interpretations. All this means that we have our work cut out for us when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation. We must be careful. We must be diligent. We must be attentive to the text and to what the text means. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.